Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to an episode in New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. David Alston about his book, Slaves and Highlanders, Silenced Histories of of Scotland and the Caribbean, which was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. Um, The book shows how Scots were involved in every stage of the slave trade. The book focuses on Scottish Highlanders who engaged in or benefited from these crimes, uh, particularly in the Caribbean islands and Guyana, uh, some reluctantly, but many with enthusiasm and without particular remorse. Um, Their voices are clearly heard in the archives throughout this book. But David Alston also gives voice not only to these Scots, but also to enslaved Africans and their descendants, um, and tells us the stories of their experiences as well. The book uh, does focus on particular colonies, uh, which we're going to get into, and examines how this is a really vital history that we need to engage with in order to more fully understand Scottish history, uh, Scotland's role in the British Empire, Um, and what sort of things that that leaves us to reckon with in today's world. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. David Alston to the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if you could start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain how you came to write this book. Yes, certainly. Uh, I'm a freelance historian. Uh, I live in a small community in the north of Scotland, in in the Highlands, a place called Cromarty, which has less than a thousand people in it. Uh, And my interest in history began with an interest in the history of Cromarty. This is about 25 years ago. Uh, I became aware that Cromarty seemed to have a, a, a connection with Guyana on the north coast of South America. Now, this had come up in a couple of ways. One is that I had an account of someone who was at school in Cromarty 200 years ago who sat next to a black pupil in the local school, and the two of them actually had a knife fight. Um, the, the man, the white uh, pupil, was called Hugh Miller. He went on to be a very significant figure in the middle of the century. Um, he was a, a journalist, a geologist, a collector of folklore, and he wrote about his upbringing in Cromarty. Um, he'd started off his working life as a stonemason. Um, he'd got lung disease and he'd started carving gravestones because th- that was less punishing work than, than quarry work. I looked at the gravestones he'd carved and two of them were for local people, Cromarty men, who had connections with, with Guyana. So I, I began to realise there was there was some local connection. And this, this is 25 years ago, so it's at a point when people were not really recognising any significantly large connection between Scotland, and certainly not between the highlands, and the slave plantations of the Caribbean and, and South America. So I initially thought, well, this may be a... So, you know something that's of, of a local interest, but the more I looked, the more I found, um, and I gradually started building up the information on connections between the Highlands and Guyana during the era of slavery. Uh, I then moved on to try and take a broader view of connections between the Highlands and the wider Car- um, Caribbean, and came to the conclusion, which I, you know, which I think other people have have been establishing the same thing, that that Scotland's involvement with slavery and the slave trade was immense. It was out of proportion to the number of Scots in Britain. 
so that's um, that's how I came to write the book. Um, but the, I mean, the title "Silenced Histories." There, I think it's important to say that they're, they're histories that are silenced for, I believe, have been silenced for two reasons. One is that it's that it, that it is history of of white Scots, of Highlanders, and these histories have been silenced because in many ways they've been inconvenient histories which have not sat comfortably with the the narrative, with the story the Scots want to tell about themselves. So they, they've been silenced for that reason. But the the other side of this, and it's what you mentioned in your introduction, is that I became more and more aware of the significance of the histories of the millions of individuals who suffered from this exploit this exploitation and I've done what I can to to recover the voices of at least some of them and this is something I'm definitely going to be asking you about later in our interview because both methodologically but also in the writing uh, those voices come through in really interesting and surprising ways that because of often challenges in terms of what was written down and what was considered valuable um, and who was considered valuable uh, it seems quite unusual to find so much detail in these voices as you've done. Um, but to start off with, help us set the stage, particularly for our audiences who may not be as familiar with Scottish history. Um, the Scottish emigration from Scotland during the time period you're looking at was quite significant in general, but also in terms of how many Scots ended up dominating the population's of many of these island slaveholding colonies, the proportion of Scots amongst the colonial population was quite significant. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit to our listeners why Scots were ending up in the Caribbean um, in general from the Highlands, but particularly the sort of, as we're going to see later on, this problem of the middling families. Why were there so many Scots in the Caribbean? Well, I think sitting in the background is a very long-standing tradition of mobility in Scotland. I think it has been said that Scots were one of the most mobile peoples in Europe, going back into the 1500s and the 1600s. A lot of that tied up with military service. Um, Scotland joins with England in 1707 in the Union of the Parliaments. And at that point, although Scots had been involved in some of the the, the the plantation economies, um, particularly in Suriname before that, they hadn't had access to what were the English sugar islands of, of the West Indies. But with the Union of 1707, that possibility suddenly opens up to Scots and open up, opens up to Highlanders. And what seems to happen is that that there is, there's then a, a disproportionate involvement of Scots, and I, I think a dispro- probably a disproportionate involvement of Highland Scots who are responding to that opportunity. Um, on on so from a, almost a standing start, um, on one reckoning by about the 1770s, something like a third of the white population of Jamaica um, has some kind of Scottish connection. That's way out of propor- proportion to the Scottish population. Um, what's also happening is that as, uh, as the century goes on, new opportunity, if you're looking at it from the, the, the white Scottish perspective, new opportunities arise, particularly with the acquisition of, of the, the island, Grenada, Tobago, other islands, which were known as the Ceded Islands, which are, are gained in 1763. And 
then at the end of the century, um, the acquisition in the late 1790s of Trinidad and uh, of Guyana. And it's Guyana that I was particularly interested in. Um, it, it's at the, it, some, it has been called the, the last frontier of, of that empire. I think it's, most people have not, a lot of people haven't heard of Guyana. Um, and most people haven't heard of the colonies which made up Guyana, which are, Dem- well, they'll have heard the name Demerara, um, but perhaps don't know where it is. Uh, and the, the, one of the other Dutch colonies there, Berbice, most people have not heard of, but it became on some measures the most Scottish, the most Highland of, of, the, of the colonies. And that's the place where the whole system of plantation slavery is being pushed to the limits, um, being pushed to the limits in the sense of the, the balance of population between the white ruling class and the, the enslaved Africans. Um, and it's also the place where money is being made right up until the end of colonial slavery. So Scots are responding to these opportunities. Um, why? So what, why are they responding out of proportion to their population? I think that reflects the economy at home. Um, in the Highlands, traditional society is, is breaking down. The clan system is breaking down. So it's, it's a period of disruption. Um, it prob- that probably also goes along with uh, you know, quite a number of people with, with reasonably good education. So there, there are opportunities there, a tradition of mobility. People are responding to them. They're, they're following the money. And there was quite a lot of money, as you demonstrate. Um, and this took the form of, as you said, the increase in plantations um, and slave-based plantation economies really um, getting quite extensive. And you you start this in a lot of ways in Jamaica, um, which, as you demonstrate, holds quite a strong place in the Scottish imagination at this point, even though Scots end up kind of getting more involved in some of the other colonies. Um, but could you help us understand sort of this these things that you've mentioned, actually, you demonstrate in the book, have quite a link of the Scottish mobility around military service. And then that ends up coming back again in the establishment of plantations. Um, and leads to things like there's apparently an Edinburgh castle in Jamaica. Can you tell us about about these links between the plantation economy, the military background of Scots, and how this leads to terror on a mass scale? I think there's a number of ways in in, in which that military background is significant. In order to run large sugar plantations in particular, and large large sugar Large-scale sugar plantations are an invention. Uh, they've been described as, as a machine where, where, where the moving parts are people, the, the enslaved Africans. Um, there is a huge issue for the white planters of control. You can, you can only run that machine if you have absolute control, and that control at the end of the day re- relies on brutality. You need people who are prepared to terrorise other people. Um, and you will find that in from people who have themselves um, been brutalised, and, and I think a lot of military service did that to people. So there's a lot of people who have experience of military service who um, can then see opportunities for themselves in the Caribbean and South America. Um, 
and they have that that skill of being of of being prepared to to terrorize other people. So the, the, there's that link. Um, there's also an important link in uh, in Scotland. The, the Scots had a tradition of service in the Dutch army. Um, a part of the Dutch army called the Scotch Brigade, which was at some points to six regiments, um, and that gave Scots um, a link even even before the Union in 1707, a link into Dutch colonies. So, um, um, so into Suriname. Um, it also gave them a link into the colonies which became Guyana, um, even before. Britain took over. So there, there are Scots and there are Highland Scots in Guyana from the 1760s, 1770s. So some of, the, some of that certainly helped by, by these military links. But the, 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 the question you've asked about Edinburgh Castle in Jamaica, uh, what's going on there is, also, is something, something a bit different, but also very interesting. Um, Scots have become extensively involved in, in Jamaica but planters in general by the, the middle of the century had really become quite um, frightened by resistance from enslaved Africans. There, there had been uprisings, so there's, there's, that, there, there's a bit of insecurity there. But also there, there is, Scots have got there after the other settlers, so their plantations tend to be on the, the north, in the north of Jamaica on slightly poorer ground, and that's an area that is suffering attacks from from Spanish privateers. So there, there, there's a sense there that we, um, here, you know, here we are as plant, plantation owners in Jamaica, um, we need a bit more protection. And then what they do is to build themselves something from their own tradition. They build what are in effect fortified tower houses, which are common throughout Scotland, particularly the Scottish borders, also common in Ireland, but they belong in the 1600s. And yet, a hundred years later, that's what people turn to when they want to build something—a stone building that they can both live in, but can can resist attack. So, Edinburgh Castle. Um, there are a number of other castles in Jamaica like that, and they're they're, they're almost a time warp, um, but, uh, but they they represent that Scottish presence, a Scottish presence that's aware of its own traditions, and then is using them to to. To create to enhance their security, I found that particularly fascinating. Having visited Edinburgh Castle in obviously Edinburgh, um, to know that there was one in Jamaica that, as you said, was quite out of its time as well as place. Um, but I want to pick up this idea of the violence, the brutality, um, and moving on to Granada. You talk about how after 1763, there's quite a lot of trouble not just from uh, not just fears of the plantation owners being scared of enslaved africans um but also amongst the settlers um particularly along religious lines but sometimes also national lines um and you argue that this society in granada at this time was quote a society founded on brutal violence towards enslaved africans and characterized by feuds amongst the settlers um and that this was in a large part due to the influence of Scots and Highlander culture in particular. So given that we sort of mentioned that a bit already, I was wondering if you could explain this link between Highlander culture and sort of these feuds and this brutality that in a lot of senses does sort of seem more medieval than early modern. Well, Grenada had been a French island um, 
And so its planter population uh, were white French Catholics. And there was also a significant, um, what we call the free coloured population, um, who, who were also Catholic. Um, and this is at a period in Britain where you know, there had just been the Jacobite rising in 1745 about trying to put a Catholic monarch back on the throne. So that, that Protestant-Catholic distinction is not just a distinction in religion, it's about um, what it is to be British and very much what it is to be British is to be, to be, to be Protestant. So the, so the, the planters and, and the authorities in these islands are, are faced with the challenge of, you know, how, how do we now react to a population that's got a significant Catholic part of it? And the, the same was true in, in what was to become Canada. Um, and the hope, I think, initially, and certainly a government policy, was to extend greater toleration to the Catholic population, the French and the, and the free coloured Catholic population of, of Grenada. Uh, and the initial issues were, should, should they be allowed to vote in elections to the, to the, to the colony's assembly? Um, now that hope of greater toleration broke down and it broke down because of the staunch Presbyterian and anti-Catholic sentiments of many of the Scottish planters who were virulently opposed to the idea of Catholic emancipation or even limited Catholic rights. And that, that form of feud um, both split the white population, um, it alienated the, the free-coloured population, and it was part of the, the circumstances which that led to were part of what led to the the rebellion, the revolution, the Fadon Revolution of of seventeen ninety five, in which leading planters who were who were members of the the governing body on on in the colony were executed. Um, so it, it it so the Scottish presidents and the Scottish feuds, which were imported to the to the island helped to fuel the discontent which made that revolution possible. So I want to stay on that revolution for a second because I was quite interested in your discussion of it as more significant than it's probably often remembered as. Um, so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what sort of happened and why you sound like you would argue from the book that uh, we should be paying more attention to this revolution in our understanding of this time period. Yes, I'm very much relying on, on the work of other scholars here. Um, and there has been quite a lot of work done recently um, showing just the, sc the, the scale of the uprising, the, the impact, I mean, the fact that you know, there, were, there, were, there were executions of the, of the leaders, of the, the white leaders in the colony. Um, and it really shook... Um, you know, I think it meant that it went from a place where people felt this, and this was a place where it was making money. I mean, this is, and so, so the making money, this is a place people are attracted to. It's been, it's been, and it has, it has, was being held up as, as a place where 
at least from the point of view of people refer, investing from Britain, uh, being portrayed to them as a place where you could have an, an harmonious society where people could make money. Um, I mean, it's quite misleading, an entirely misleading picture where you had happy enslaved Africans who, who were well treated. Um, so there, there was a lot of spin going on. And suddenly this is shattered by by a significant rev- revolutionary movement because it, it is both an uprising of the enslaved ag- against the enslavers and it uh, involves free people who are inspired by ideas of the French of, um, of, of, of the French Revolution. So it really does shake to the core the notion of a quite colonial society that is that is that is part of a wider British society. Um, and it, take, it 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 the economy is disrupted, and it takes a number of decades for the the economy to to get back to the point where it was. Um, so it it has it 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 had a big big impact, and um, we probably should be more aware of it. But I, but I think I think that's general. That's true of an awful lot, an awful lot of Caribbean history. There there are big events which. Um, I think we seem to have forgotten, and quite a number of uprisings that we we know very little about when when we look at British history. And so, on the point of the economy, on the idea of making money, and that being a really captivating idea, um, at the beginning of the book, this you talk about kind of this idea of Jamaica, and that's something that draws out Scots uh, to try and sort of make it themselves, even if, as we've already discussed, many of them don't end up in Jamaica, and in fact, Scots. Uh, are represented in quite a number of the colonies in this area. But I was particularly interested to see that you demonstrate in the book that even Scots who never left Scotland were still quite heavily involved in slave-based economics through a number of different industries, um, particularly cloth production, fishing, and banking. Could you tell us a little bit about sort of the scale and involvement of these industries for Scots who maybe never left the country? Yes, certainly. I, I, there are, as we've been saying, a significant number of Scots who do go to the Caribbean, but they, they tend to be people with a with a little bit of money, with an education, with a trade. Um, but I think it's important to to see how the per, per, the the way in which the sla- the plantation based economies permeate Britain, permeate Scotland, and I think the. Two very clear examples of that are the production of linen cloth in Scotland. Uh, this was a kind of cloth that was called uh, Osnabergs after, after Osnabrück in Germany, a coarse linen cloth. And the principal export market for that was the Caribbean because it was also called slave cloth. It was, it was used to, to, as, as clothing for enslaved people. Uh, after the Jacobite rising of 1745, one of the principal policies of government after that was to integrate the economy of the highlands into the the rest of the country. So, so that if if the economy was integrated, if people depended for their livelihood on on the rest of the country, it was far less likely to be to be future rebellions. So that 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 was the thought. And um, what was promoted both. Well, with government backing, but but in other ways, well, was the spinning of linen yarn. Um, it it wasn't flax that was being grown in Scotland. It was being imported from the Baltic. It was being shipped 
to the north of Scotland, to principally to Cromarty, where I where I live, and it was then being distributed for women to spin in households throughout the north. Uh, and there was there was a technological innovation because this is the point at which spinning wheels are introduced. Uh, so that traditional image of the the Highland Croft with a spinning wheel at the door uh, has its origins in the promotion of spinning linen yarn to be shipped, to be spun in the Highlands, taken south and woven into slave cloth. Uh, and that, I think, is as, you know, as, as probably as clear an example as there is of, of the way in which, um, because it's in the Caribbean that money is being made, that's where the export market is. Uh, as it's not just about importing sugar and cotton and coffee from the, from the Caribbean. It's about shipping out all the things that you need to, to run that economy. Uh, so, so that's that's a clear example. Um, the other example is that to keep people alive, you you need to provide them with a minimal amount of protein, and salt fish was the the principal protein which was being provided to the enslaved population throughout the Caribbean. Uh, significant amount of that was coming from Newfoundland. But there's also a significant export trade from Scotland in salt herring and in, in other salt fish as well. Um, so there so other communities um, in Scotland on the east and west coasts are, are benefiting from that. Um, and when you, you, we get to the emancipation of slaves in the 1830s, that market is lost and there are there are protests um, People lobby Parliament, right, to, to their their MP, um, complaining that the, the the West Indian market has been lost and and it's it's, it's creating economic hardship. So these 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 are two ways in which very, um, which even some of the poorest people in in the Highlands, where their livelihoods had come to depend by, on exports to the Caribbean. Another example, though, that um, probably affects best, slightly better off people is the whole development of the, the financial sector. Um, slave economies relied on credit um, and extensive networks of credit and financial instruments that, that, that allowed the, the, these networks of credit to operate, quite sophisticated financial in, instruments. And so the, the, the development of, of banking systems um was and and I should say of accounting systems where were um were two things which came out of of the plantation economies um and the 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 accounting systems it, it it was part of of the control of the plantations and and the word control is originally an accounting term uh, and and that and these accounting systems were um, it, it was people in Scotland, part of the Scottish Enlightenment. The development of accounting was part of the Scottish Enlightenment, and the, the standard handbooks for running plantations, for running the accounts, were were Scottish and went through edition after edition. Um, and, you know, so clearly these accounting systems, the banking systems, were were also things which developed within Britain, but which were benefiting from skills that had been honed in the Caribbean and South America. And so to stay with the idea of the more well-off, in addition to personally being surprised by the extent to which 
Scottish populations in Scotland were involved in the slave-based economy. Um, I was also interested by one of your uh, examples that you discuss how the wealth derived from slavery financed the majority of changes in land ownership from the period of 1726 to 1929, so essentially 200 years. Can you please give us a few brief examples, the way that you have of the lower end of the economy, about how this wealth from slavery enabled land ownership at the top of the economic pyramid? Well, this, um, again, I'm re- relying very much on the work of other scholars here, and there's some very good recent work being done um, look, looking at land transfers in the Highlands uh, in in the latter part of that period, really. And, and one of the the impacts of abolition was that slave holders were compensated for the loss of what they regarded as their property, that is, the, the, the enslaved people who were now free. So they, they went from having an, an investment in, in their minds, the ownership of slaves, to being cash rich because, because they, they got the money. Uh, and that enabled large land purchases, all sorts of other ways of investing money. But so after 1833-34, a lot of land um, changes hands in the Highlands. And that's also partly because owning owning land in the Highlands is is beginning to become fashionable. There's there's interest in the Highlands. So it's partly people um, buying for economic reasons and hoping to develop that land. But I think there's also the beginnings of that idea of um, you know, becoming a Highland landed proprietor, a Highland gentleman. Uh, the, a very clear example of this, I think it's a very telling example, is the island of Rassi off the, the west, uh, west coast of Scotland. And Rassi has become, all, I think it's, it's right here to use the word iconic of the Highland clearances in the sense that, that it is an instance through which we see a larger reality. And it's become iconic because of the poetry of the Gaelic poet Sorley MacLean and his poem Hallig, which is about the clearance of the community in in Rassi, Hallig. Uh, and a lot of people who think about the Highland clearances um, would either think about the Sutherland clearances or or Sorley, McLean, Sorley MacLean's poem Hallig. Um, Hallig was cleared of its people one of the things which I established was that that clearance was carried out. It was always known it was carried out by somebody called George Rainey. But I think what had been lost was the fact that George Rainey was a Highlander himself. Um, he was a, a son of the minister, in, a minister in Southern, but he had spent more than 30 years of his life in Guyana. He had made his money through plantation ownership and particularly through being involved in one of the large merchant houses, which which grew in Guyana, and was well, was a, still a very powerful force at the end of colonial slavery, so he is somebody who had direct experience of running a plantation. If he didn't hold the whip, then he gave the orders to those who did, and thirty years later, forty years later, he's he's owning a, an island. And he clears it of its people, and he does that with a, a callousness and a, a brutality, which is such that you can't help but see a, a relationship between 
the way in which he's worked in Guyana and the way in which he implements his policies in Massey. I think you said it precisely. You can't help but see the links. Um, that was quite evident in reading the book. Um, but I want to move now to thinking about, from thinking about the enslavers to thinking about the enslaved, um, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, your book uh, includes both entire sections discussing the experiences of the enslaved um, Africans, but also um, interspersed throughout the book, the way that you discuss the Highlanders. So I was wondering, given the challenges that including this kind of material often poses for researchers, you could start us off on this section by explaining sort of how did you manage to include these? How, what archives, methods, discoveries, etc., helped make it possible to achieve this goal of giving voice to the people who were enslaved? It, it's been the part of writing this book, which I've come to feel is, is the most important part and which I think is the direction that my work is going in at the moment. It is challenging. Um, I think I was lucky in the sense that it was Guyana I became interested in and through some accidents of history, the records which survive from the period of slavery in Guyana are records which do give voice to enslaved people. Now, there, this is because in um, there was a system where slaves could complain. Now, that sounds un, unlikely, but it was part of the, the Dutch system and it was maintained by the British. Um, so enslaved people who felt that they had been wrongly treated could bring a complaint to an official um, and that was examined. Now, doing that meant taking significant risks because you know, obviously the plantation owner or the, or the manager knew you were making that complaint and and you risk retribution, and, and there was retribution in very, very many cases. So, but the fact that people did the, the fact that people did complain shows how important the issues were to them. Uh, I've relied very much on the, the work of, of Randy Brown, um, who's published a book called "Surviving Slavery in in the British Caribbean," which uses the, these records. And I've done something similar. I've also tried to, to look at look at earlier records, you've always got to be careful with them because what's recorded is recorded by the, the white authorities in the colony. But nevertheless, um, you can, with care, hear something at least of the voice of the enslaved. Um, and also, they're, they're, I think a key to being able to do this kind of work are records which are being digitised and made freely available. And I really want to praise the National Archives of the Netherlands, who have worked with the National Archives of Guyana to, to digitise and make freely available everything in the, in the archives in Guyana up to 1815, which they call the Dutch period, because that's, after that it was transferred to, uh, um, to formally transferred to Britain. And there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot there. Um, where again, with care, um, it's always it's never go, it's never going to be written by um, by the enslaved, but they are sometimes reporting the words of of enslaved people. Um, 
I just I just give you a very very quick example. One of the things I've become interested in is um, it, it's clear that in the early eighteen hundreds, um, here's a he, here's a phrase from these records that comes from an enslaved person in eighteen o eight, and this is the year after um, the abolition of the transatlantic African slave trade. Um, sorry, it's not. It's, it's a little bit later. It's eighteen thirteen. Um, so six years later. It's an enslaved man called Pompey who's on a plantation called Washington, which belongs to a Highland Scot. And Pompey says, this is Christmas 1813, no new people come from Africa. Now, I had never thought of the end of the colonial, the, the, the transatlantic slave trade from that perspective of the enslaved, that it's suddenly a moment of isolation. There is no no more people are coming. And what, what Pompey then says, so we must look after ourselves and do that story. And look after ourselves, other things he says, and, and lots of other evidence explains that that means they have to gather together in what they call their nations. Now, these are not African ethnic identities. They're These are people who have been gathered together from a, a hugely diverse group of, of of African peoples. They're having to create their own ethnicities, um, but that you know, and that's what they need in order to to survive is is to create new identities. Um, so they must they must look after themselves in in what they call their nations, and they must do their story. And for Pomp- doing doing the story is you must care for the sick. You must bury the dead properly with with proper rights um you must settle your own disputes and what it actually means as well it turns out and is you must plan to rise up against the enslavers so so that is big you know it's all indirect but it's you are beginning to get a sense of of that of terrible conditions but also of the of the creativity of, of creating new identities, of finding ways to resist, of finding ways to survive. And that came up a number of times throughout the histories of the individuals that you were able to introduce us to in the book, um, particularly around this idea that you mentioned earlier of the, quote, free coloured population, right? People mm-hmm. who had previously been enslaved, but then had gained their freedom in some way. Um, and particularly, I was interested in the stories of a number of the women mm. um, and how they navigated a world that was challenging from a race point of view, but also obviously from a gendered point of view. So I was wondering, as you've just introduced us to one of the figures that turns up in the book, um, might you have one or two other figures you can briefly introduce us to? Yes, certainly. And I, I should explain that I, I use the term free coloured. I mean, we, we would now say, you know, you know, a free person of color, and 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 a free colored woman can sound because um, you know if you use that phrase, it can offend. But it it was it was an important phrase to the women themselves because they wanted to distinguish themselves from free blacks and from enslaved people. Um, so there is there is a period. Um, these these are. I'll talk about Guyana um, because it's a place I know best, but it, the same would be true of other places. Um, these are colonies with 
very few white women um, and young a, a lot of young white men. Sexual abuse is endemic in the system of of slavery. There, there, there is sexual abuse of of enslaved women, but there is also an opportunity for free women of color, free colored women. Quite a number of whom moved to Guyana because it's a growing developing colony from from Barbados, and who enter into relationships um, with white men there. Um, and who also bring about engineer relationships between their daughters and, and white women, and who some of whom are remarkably powerful. Um, they're certainly enterprising, um, and they, there is a moment where they are a very powerful force in the colony. The, the one, the, the the woman in Guyana who is best known is somebody called. Um, uh, well, she would she would have insisted in being called Mrs. Thomas. She was Dorothy Thomas. Um, when people weren't listening, she was called Doll Thomas. Uh, Doll Thomas was she. She was the the large. She was a slave owner herself. She was the largest free coloured sorry the largest free coloured woman who was a slave owner, um, and uh, a, a businesswoman. Uh, she um, there was a, a tax had been placed on. Free coloured women, uh, free coloured men didn't pay the tax because they had to serve in the militia. In the eighteen twenties, Doll Thomas successfully had that tax removed, and she did that by travelling to London. Uh, when she got back, um, we know she was successful because the other free coloured women um, got together to buy her a, a silver salver inscribed with their thanks to her for having the tax removed. So we know she was successful. And the story which she put about, or which which spread, was that in London she'd hired um, a coach with six horses and liveried footmen. And she'd had herself driven to St James's Palace where she emerged dressed in a turban studded with diamonds with an ostrich feather, a necklace of gold doubloons, and a skirt made of five-pound notes of the Bank of Guyana sewn together. Uh, And she demanded to see the Foreign Secretary. Now, I mean, whatever happened, she, she made her mark in London and was successful in having that tax removed, she was also at a different point in Glasgow. She had her children and grandchildren educated in Scotland. Um, her, her her daughters were in relationships with with Scots. Um, so she is she's she is probably the outstanding example, but by no means the only example of these what, what other scholars have called enterprising women in this period in the the Caribbean. I would, having read the book, definitely agree that that was definitely one of the standout examples, but also there were many of them. Mm. Um, And so readers interested in more of those um, snippets of history, snippets of biography, um, should investigate the full book, because there were quite a number of captivating ones. Um, But this idea of children of colour in Scotland, in England, in Britain, is to a large degree inevitable when we're talking about decades of slavery um, and a colonial empire with travel back and forth. 
Um, and yet, as you demonstrate in the book, there were many, especially in the upper classes of British society, that were a bit stunned in many ways um, by these children of colour when they were in Britain. Um, and you you discuss them having, quote, an influence beyond their numbers. Uh, so can you explain a bit sort of what this impact was and why it was so shocking? Yes. Um, well, the, I mean, it's important, I think, to say first, I mean, the the, the, the children of colour who end up back here are, are a tiny minority of the children who are born to white fathers in, in the Caribbean. But some are freed and some of those who are freed are sent back to, to Britain for education. Um, I think they've got an impact beyond their, their numbers because whenever that happens, the, the, the family is suddenly faced with the fact that they have a, they have a black relation within the family. Um, uh, and they're, they're not expecting it. Quite, quite often these children you know, simply appear. Um, somebody comes off a comes off a ship, and th- there are what we would have called coloured children. Um, so families have to negotiate. They have they have to work out what you know what they're going to do. What part do they have within the family? Um, there's a very good book. I mean, published quite a while ago now, called A Private Empire by Stephen Foster, who looked at the McPherson family from Blair Gowrie, where who sons were in Berbice and exactly that this happened. Um, the, the children come back. Um, the, the, the father writes a letter to his son saying you should leave them in Glasgow or Begurik, I think, where the ship was, was docking. Uh, the son doesn't get the letter, so the children end up back at the, at the house um, to the shock of his mother. Um, his mother at first can only refer to them as the Midnight Shades. Sorry, or the the moonlight shades, um, you know, but gradually comes to 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 be reconciled to the fact that they they are her grandchildren. Um, she won't let them take the family name. Uh, her son is called William, so they get the surname Williams, because they are Williams. Um, one of the one of the girls does stay and looks after her grandmother, but the the. Boys end up in Australia, and I, I've found you know, very often there isn't a comfortable future for the children of mixed race unless they can, if they can pass as white, that's fine. Um, they, they, but even then, uh, you know, they, it may be easier for them to find a future in 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 the colonies in in India. Um, there is there's an interesting example from another family from Jamaica where the children come back. Um, the son, whose um, name is Peter Grant, is being educated in Aberdeen. He's been cared for by the principal of Aberdeen University. And the principal writes to his father, basically saying he's going to be OK because his skin is lighted off and he doesn't have curly hair. So he's, 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 he's going to pass as white. But actually, Peter, Peter Grant ends up in India um, with a successful military career. Um, so you, you can find these examples of what people at the time would have, would have regarded as successful integration. But for lots, they, they stood out. And I think during the 1820s, the 1830s and, and onwards, racial prejudice is becoming more systematic. Um, and there isn't a comfortable future for, for them. So I think many leave. 
Um, and it's I, I, I found quite remarkably, looking in the early 1800s at Inverness Royal Academy, um, almost one in nine of the pupils there in 1804 were from the Caribbean. Now, I don't know how many of them were of mixed race, but a considerable number certainly were. Um, and yet, if you know, if you moved on half a century, you'd have almost no black pupils in the academy. So it's it, so people then I think forgot about this aspect of our history, the the, the presence of of black children in families and in our communities. And I think that goes back to what you're saying at the beginning of this interview that there is a lot of this history, um, and yet it's more that we've forgotten it, and in many cases purposely not told these stories. That is why it can be so surprising today. Um, as you said, it's it's uncomfortable. It doesn't sit with a lot of the myths and the narratives that we have now, um, particularly in terms of sort of Scottish innovation and the Scottish mm. role in the Enlightenment um, and these sorts of things, which you discuss explicitly in the last section of your book, which you title Reckonings. Um, and as you discuss, it's not simple what that means. It's not simple the words restitution, reparations. Um, there are a lot of complexities around that idea, but you highlight in particular the role of civic institutions in addition to public policies um, and how we approach our shared histories and um, remember them and which things we choose to highlight, um, particularly in terms of Scottish innovation. There was quite a distinct lack that was interesting that you highlighted. So I was wondering if you could, obviously this is a very tricky question, um, but briefly summarise for us um, what your research and investigation into this complicated, but in a lot of ways, visible as soon as you start to look history. Um, how should we be dealing with that today? Um, and how should our institutions be thinking about it as part of Scotland's history? Well, I... Uh, um... I think there, there is a, an approach which says it's up to historians to do the history to see what happened to get that right. And then it's up to, in some sense, others to answer the question, what are the implications of this? Um, I don't find that a tenable position. I mean, I don't think nobody is just an historian. We're citizens. I certainly believe I would argue, I hope, convincingly but I, I think these are fun these are really matters of philosophy of ethics I think we have responsibilities we have we have moral burdens from the past and I think the clearest way to to express that is if we want to take pride in our past and, and lots and we do we've also got to accept the the shame that goes along with the the actions about which we should be ashamed and this isn't something that we're detached from we we are part of communities we are part of nations we are part of states um, and i think fundamentally these are communal responsibilities i don't think you know 200 nearly 200 years on this is about individuals and individual families um, descendants of individual families although you know, People who are descendants of individual families who made who made money in slavery you know, may want to address that, may want to explore that. But but the fundamental question is is one is the question: How do we as as Scots or as Britons um, reckon with 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 our history, and how do we what are the responsibilities that arise from that? So so I I think it's fundamentally a communal responsibility, but I, th I think there there's responsibilities on our civic institutions. Um, I think in and there are some 
great examples of, of, of institutions are responding to that. I think Glasgow University is an outstanding example of you know, having commissioned a report on how it benefited and, and instituted a, a programme of reparation. Um, every university should be doing that. Um, but I think we, I mean, so much of the history of people in the Caribbean, the history of their ancestors are held in archives in this country. I, I was explaining earlier what the National Archives of the Netherlands had done. Um, to our shame, I think Britain has done very little. And I think it ought to be you know, for the community of academic historians. I think a priority ought to be to be pressuring government, whether that's British government or Scottish government, to place a duty on our archives, on our national galleries, to make what they have freely available online so that the sources for the history of the descendants of enslaved Africans are, are available. And, and I would, I mean, and it, it isn't just enslaved Africans, it's also indentured Indian laborers who were, who were brought to, to the Caribbean in, in, in their millions. Um, I think part of, there, there's, I suppose, a sort of intellectual reparation that needs to be done in making the sources for the history available. I think that's a really, that's often a piece that's missing um, from the discussion. So thank you for bringing that up, um, particularly given how important archival work is demonstrated to be in your book. Um, and so as you mentioned at the beginning, this is something you've been working on for quite a while um, and in many ways was prompted by that discovery of your own area and a history that you weren't necessarily aware of that was just in the surrounding community that hadn't, hadn't been brought out. Um, so my traditional second to last question, therefore, is can you tell us one of the most surprising things you discovered in the process of writing this book, big, small, included in the book or not? Um, but I think it's always interesting to see what is surprising to the person who is closest to the work. Um, there, there's lots that shocks me. There's lots that surprises me. I think the one that is running in my mind at the moment is an enslaved African who's given the name Archie, who I think is probably brought in the 1790s by Dutch slave traders to Berbice, becomes an in, is enslaved on a plantation belonging to James Fraser of Belladrum. Uh, Belladrum is in the Highlands, and some of the listeners may know it from the Belladrum Music Festival. Um, the um, Archie Archie comes to to Britain. He comes to Scotland, and I now know that he in in eighteen eighteen ten eighteen eleven he, he was at Belladrum in the Highlands. Um, Archie has a Archie goes back with James Fraser to to, to Guyana to Berbice. And Archie has another life. Archie is the king of the Coromantes on the west coast of Berbice, and he's involved in plotting an uprising. Um, a, a, a little studied uprising in, in, in 1814. And yet, when he's, when he's caught and um, he's tried and he's condemned and six of the other leaders are brutally executed, um, Archie 
isn't executed because the the, the verdict wasn't majority a majority it wasn't a unanim, wasn't a unanimous verdict it was a majority verdict he's protected by the man who claimed to own him James Fraser um, and instead he's flogged and he's to be sent out of the colony um, in, into exile and James Fraser initially proposes that he's exiled to Scotland um, the the court won't accept that I think he ends up in Grenada but there are so many things going on there um, an African-born man who's in Guyana who's in Scotland he's also in Liverpool and in London goes back organizes a, an uprising and yet has yet is yet the man who claims to own him has invested so much in, in, in what he must perceive as a relationship that he wants to preserve that and wants and what Archie to end up back in the Highlands. I I find that sort of mind-blowing in the I suppose in the true sense that it, that, I, that I find it difficult to comprehend everything that's going on there. I, I think that you've summed it up quite accurately. There's a lot going on there um, and a lot that could be investigated and unpacked, which leads me beautifully to my next question, my final question, um, which is... And this always seems a bit mean, given that your book was only published last year and was a massive effort. Um, but what are you working on now or next? Um, well, obviously, I finished writing the book a bit before it was published, so I've had I've had a, I've had a bit of time to think about where I'm going next. And um, in the yeah, in the immediate future, what what I'm looking at is the history of. Um, Maroons, um, those those enslaved people who escaped, and at least for some time were able to live free in in the forests of of Guyana. So Maroons and the in Guyana, um, and the the close connection between that and organisation on the plantations in Guyana, um, in in African nations, and I I think there's something. Um, going something going on there which is different what is hap- than happened with Maroons in in Jamaica and and Suriname where where Maroons survive today they they didn't survive in in Guyana but I I think it's something that tells us quite a lot about um, about what's going on in in that period where there's been a sudden an, an enormous influx of of Africans uh, so it's it's that interaction between the, 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 the white slave owners, many of whom are Scots, the enslaved Africans, their African heritage, but this, 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 this striving for freedom through uprising or through, um, through escape. I think that will be fascinating. Um, so I hope to read that research when it comes, becomes available. Um, and I think there's a lot that can be investigated there. So I'm certainly interested in learning more. Um, thank you very much for your time with this interview and for sharing the work that you've spent so much time and effort on uh, with the rest of the world. I know that I certainly learned a lot from it um, and hopefully our readers and our listeners, apologies, uh, learned from this interview as well. If you are interested in going from being a listener to a reader of the book, a reminder it's titled Slaves and Highlanders, Silenced Histories of Scotland and the Caribbean and was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Dr. David Alston. Thank you very much, Miranda, for having the discussion with me. Mm -hmm.